0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, September 13th. I'm Marco Werman. Anti-American protests spread in the Middle East. Some in the region see more than outrage over an anti-Muslim film.
1: I see it as an attack at the Arab Spring, at the revolution.
0: Plus, we hear how that obscure film provoked the unrest.
1: The people who
2: like to create these hateful videos and the people who use it as a pretext as violence are actually not in clash. They're in a nice, mutually reinforcing, symbiotic relationship.
3: That's ahead on The World. The world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World.
0: Anti-American protests spread further today across the Middle East. Today, the American embassy in Yemen came under attack. Again, the protests were reportedly fueled by anger at an anti-Muslim film made in the U.S. A bit later, we'll hear more about how this obscure movie became the focus of all this unrest. First, though, to Yemen's capital, Sana'a, where an angry mob stormed the U.S. embassy. Reporter Iona Craig was there when it happened.
4: There was about three groups of protesters that approached the embassy from three different directions. And one of those groups managed to get through the cordon and into the compound. They didn't reach the internal part, i.e. where the actual main building is, but they did breach security from the compound itself. Um, They burnt two SUVs, and there was quite an angry mob there who were also then burning the American flag.
0: How quickly and effectively did uh, the Yemeni security forces respond?
4: Well, it took them actually quite a while to push the crowd back. And even once they have beyond the cordons, they still managed to breach those again. They used tear gas and water cannon. And when I was there, there was a lot of um, live ammunition being fired over the heads of the protesters who were then dispersing as a result, but then regathering. They were then burning tires on the edge of the, of the cordon where they'd been pushed back to. So there was black smoke from billowing into the sky, And people were still determined to stay there. And many of them said until they managed to close the embassy altogether.
0: Iona, did you speak with enough people, enough protesters, uh, to kind of get a sense of who was involved in in this riot or whether it was even masterminded in any way?
4: Um, All the people that I spoke to said they were there as a reaction to this film. They'd seen what had happened in Egypt and also in Libya. And they'd organized this protest seemingly yesterday. Uh, I mean, what was a slightly odd thing that I saw whilst I was there was at one point when the protesters went to, to breach the security cordon, the Yemeni security forces actually stepped back at one point and let them through and were actually marching towards the embassy building with them before they eventually turned around and opened fire over their heads. So um, although you'd expect to have seen increased security because of what's happened in the region over the last 36 hours, What I saw was the security forces allowing these protesters to breach the security around the embassy. Say that again? What I saw was the Yemeni security forces actually allowing these protesters to get through the cordon, literally stepping back and letting them pass through at one point.
0: A lot of people clearly in the Arab world are are incensed by uh, what this movie, Innocence of Muslims, uh, presents. Did you speak with people in the crowd, any of these protesters, these rioters, who had actually seen the video?
4: Um, that was the interesting thing. Of all the people that I spoke to, I didn't find a single person who'd actually seen the, these clips that um, were available on YouTube. Uh, they'd just heard about it. They'd heard about the reaction in Libya. They'd heard about the reaction in, in Egypt. Uh, and from that had, had taken part in this protest. So, yes, I couldn't find actually a single person that had, had actually seen the footage for themselves.
0: Reporter Iona Craig speaking with us from the Yemeni capital, Sanaa. Thank you. Thank you. Yemen is only part of the story. There have been other anti-American protests across the Middle East this week in Iraq, Iran, and again today in Egypt. The demonstrations might have been sparked by outrage over a crude anti-Muslim film, but it's not clear where the unrest leads now. It's already proving to be a difficult challenge for the Obama administration and its hopes for positive change in a volatile region. The world's Middle East correspondent, Matthew Bell, has more.
5: The killing of the American ambassador in Libya and the attacks on U.S. diplomatic facilities in Egypt and Yemen should send a clear message to Washington, says Alan Baker. I think this should be a wake-up call. Baker is a former Israeli ambassador to Canada, and he's based at a think tank called the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. Baker says the U.S. needs to stop thinking about the turmoil in the region as an Arab spring. The U.S. administration has to remove the sunglasses and, and look clearly at what's happening in the Arab world and it's not a spring and it's brought with it a, a, a huge amount of of threats and problems the situation in Egypt might present the biggest problem for Washington violent clashes broke out today near the US Embassy in Cairo it wasn't clear whether demonstrators were protesting the film that mocked the Prophet Muhammad or if they just showed up to settle old scores with Egyptian security forces. A full day after protesters climbed the wall of the embassy, pulled down the American flag, and hoisted a black banner, like the one used by al-Qaeda groups, President Mohamed Morsi weighed in on events for the first time. He issued a recorded statement broadcast on Egyptian TV condemning the killing of U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens in Benghazi.
6: These kind of acts jeopardize the relationships between people in the world. We are not, in any way, we are not accepting those acts. We are against those acts. They are not with the people well. They are against the free-world people in the whole world.
5: Morsi condemned the anti-Muslim video. He said Egyptians have a right to protest, but added that his government is keen to prevent more attacks on U.S. diplomatic facilities. Morsi mentioned that he spoke with President Obama on the phone, What's not clear is how satisfied the White House is with Morsi's response to the crisis. Mr. Obama did an interview yesterday with the Spanish TV network Telemundo, and in an excerpt aired on MSNBC, the president was asked if he considers Egypt's current regime an ally of the United States. Here's what followed.
7: Uh, you know, I don't
3: think that uh, we would consider them an ally, uh, but we don't consider them an enemy. They,
5: they are a new government that is trying to find its way Uh, They were democratically elected. Mr. Obama said Egypt's new government is a work in progress. And in regards to the current situation, the president said Egypt needs to take its responsibility to protect the U.S. embassy and personnel seriously, or that's going to be a big problem.
7: President Obama is starting to play hardball.
5: Shadi Hamid is an Egypt expert at the Brookings Institution.
7: I think he does want to send a message that U.S. support cannot be taken for granted, We're willing to help you with your economic recovery, but we expect certain things in return, especially when it comes to fundamental issues of national security.
5: Hamid says no one should be surprised that Islamist groups, such as Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, have made great political strides during this period of turmoil in the region, but Washington should not give up on the Arab Spring.
7: What the Arab Spring provides for the U.S. is a second chance. I think that we got things wrong, For five decades, we were supporting dictatorships pretty consistently and doing so against our founding ideals as Americans. And that's one of the reasons that millions of Arabs either dislike or hate the U.S. It doesn't come from nothing.
5: Hamid says one reason Washington needs to engage with the Arab world's new political players is that the alternatives are worse. To the right of the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, are the ultra-conservative Salafi Muslim groups the same ones suspected of killing Ambassador Stevens and raising the black flag at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem.
0: Now back to the film at the heart of the current wave of anti-American protests in the Mideast. There's still a lot we don't know about the man who produced it or what he hoped to accomplish. But we do know a little about how this movie went from obscurity to lightning rod via the Internet. Zeynep Tufekshi is a visiting scholar at Princeton University Center for Information Technology Policy. She says a trailer for the film was posted online in July and was initially ignored for the most part.
2: In September, it was picked up by a few bloggers in Egypt and it was then picked up by Egyptian television stations which played it again and again and gave it great prominence partly because these were television stations using it to make a political point. And it was only after it was picked up by broadcast media, it came to the attention of the millions of people and became the clashing point that it has.
0: Right. And as we just heard uh, from the protests in Sana, no one uh, that the reporter spoke to had actually seen it. So in a way, it doesn't even matter what's on it, just the fact that it exists. Have we seen this pattern of social media distribution, protest and reaction before?
2: Absolutely. This is not the first time, nor is it the last time. We had the controversy over the cartoons in a Danish newspaper that, that in 2006 that resulted in a lot of protests. And a lot of people have forgotten that there was an incident in 2007 in northern Iraq where two Yazidi towns were car bombed. In response to another YouTube video, which showed uh, the horrific stoning death of a Yazidi girl who had supposedly ran away with a Sunni boy, and the video was posted on YouTube.
0: There's still a big disconnect here. I mean, no matter where the film came from or how it came to be, this this is a free speech issue for many. And I'm not just talking about here in the U.S. and the Arab world, too. And for others, it's seen as a hate crime. So... Tell us, you're in constant touch with a lot of Egyptians. Why is it seen so differently by two different cultures?
2: This isn't just a clash between United States, say, and the Middle East. This is also a big difference between United States and Europe. For example, in Europe, there are many laws that criminalize denying or having a revisionist history of a genocide, especially the Nazi Holocaust, and people have been sent to jail for that. I think one big clash is why such a video has no government attention in the United States, which for us is normal because the U.S. had the First Amendment for a couple hundred years. We're kind of used to this. This is just the way it goes. Whereas especially in the Middle East, if you remember, these people overthrew you know, Mubarak just a year ago. They lived in a very, very stifled public sphere environment.
0: Such a great value, as you pointed out, is placed on free speech in the U.S. But but the internet is not, you know, our father's medium. It, it burns like gasoline. What are your thoughts on some kind of regulation with this technology?
2: Rather than looking at restrictions on speech, I think there's great value in looking at how we design these sites, how we communicate with people in other countries, and whether we can open up channels of dialogue so that people from the United States can explain to Egyptians about the First Amendment. And the fact that there's an offensive video doesn't mean that either the U.S. government or majority of American people have anything to do with it or any kind of approval of it. I'm not sure that trying to restrict speech is either effective or possible Mm -hmm. at this point. The genie's out of the bottle. The content is going to find its way around. And I think the people who like to create these hateful videos and the people who use it as a pretext as violence are actually not in clash. They're in a nice mutually reinforcing symbiotic relationship that they found each other's audience. They're both getting what they want out of it. I think it's up to the rest of the world. It's up to citizens. It's up to media to create channels of conversation so that the impact of such provocations Is less. And I personally believe that we should just get used to the fact that there will be people who will say things we do not like. And this culture of free speech and getting used to dealing with offensive speech is going to hopefully spread to a lot of other places in the world, too, as more and more of these cycles happen. In fact, I'm seeing these discussions play out in the Middle East and North Africa and other countries as Muslims around the world are questioning, why don't we just ignore these things?
0: Sainab Tufekci, visiting scholar at Princeton University Center for Information Technology Policy. Thanks very much.
2: Great talking to you as usual.
0: Our coverage continues online. The world's language editor, Patrick Cox, asks, should Americans limit their speech for the sake of the Arab Spring? You can find that blog post at theworld.org. Still ahead on the program, homo
3: sapiens get a new cousin. But where is it? On PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This
0: is The World. So, thinking of ditching your old phone for a new iPhone 5? Well, let me remind you to take a minute and think about where your old electronic gear ends up. Tens of millions of tons of it becomes e-waste in the developing world, mostly in Asia and Africa. And countries there simply don't have the capacity to recycle it properly. And so you end up seeing, for example, local kids burning plastic-coated computer wires to get at the valuable copper inside. And that creates serious health and environmental problems. The world's Clark Boyd has been writing about one man's attempt to help for the BBC Future website. So, Clark, tell us more about this guy and his plan.
7: Well, his name is Hal Watts, uh, and he was a student at the London Royal College of Art. And for his graduation project, he decided to to do a design project that tackled a big problem, and he chose e-waste. And he actually went to Ghana and explored the problem, went to these dump sites where these kids are burning this wire. And he thought, well, if we could stop them burning the wires, that would be a start. So, and he looked around and he said, a lot of people here have bicycles. And that's when the idea hit him to create a machine that could help recycle this copper wire using bicycle power.
0: All right, I want you to tell us how this works, because I've tried stripping plastic off of copper wire, and it is a long, arduous job if you've got a lot of it to strip.
7: Yeah, you certainly don't want to do it by hand. The trick is offering a viable alternative to burning it, which is sort of the the easiest, least time-consuming way. So his idea is to, uh, you could bring any bike in and just mount it on this device. And as you pedal, the back wheel powers two devices. The first is uh, an auger. Think of a, a metal hopper on the back of the bike. And as you pedal, you can feed this wire into it, the plastic-coated wire, right into it. And it grinds it up and it grinds it up and it grinds it up until finally you're left with pieces that are so small that it falls through a sieve. Mm, It's kind
0: of a cotton gin for wire.
7: (laughs) It is kind of like that. And then the second part, now you have a pile of copper and a pile of plastic that's all kind of mixed together. You throw it in this, this spinning, spiraling device that was actually inspired by gold panning technology. And the bicycle powers a water pump, which pumps water into this and spins the wheel. And you get a natural separation of the plastic from the copper. And you're left with the plastic going out and you have copper. So you've recycled the copper. This is what they're after.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like really promising news for
7: uh, the future of e-waste and what to do with it. What's next for uh, Hal Watts? Well, he's got a grant to go back to Ghana and work on the idea for another six months. The big thing is selling people on this, right? Compared to just throwing the wire out and burning it, this is a a more labor-intensive, time-consuming process. Uh, So he's got to make the case to both the people who then end up exporting this stuff back to Europe, which is what happens to most of this copper. And he's got to make the case to the kids, the teenagers who are working out there that it's worth their while uh, from both a health perspective and a financial perspective to use this. Mm. Now, when you burn the copper wire, the plastic melts into it and it's not clean. If you separate it this way, you get clean copper, and it's worth 20% more on the market. So he's hoping that in that way, he can convince exporters to sign on to this idea, or he says, the kids themselves could band together, buy one of these devices, and then share it amongst themselves and recoup the expense through the extra money they get for the clean copper. Well,
0: listeners can read more about this and see a video of Hal Watts' bike in action at theworld.org. The world's Clark Boyd, who writes about Hal Watts and his bicycle-powered e-waste recycler in his latest column for the BBC Future website. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco. A low-tech solution to a high-tech problem. In many parts of Africa, high-tech is a distraction from the natural wonders in your midst anyway. We're going to Namibia now, where you will find the extraordinary black rhinoceros. If it weren't so dangerous, you could just watch the rhino for hours. Writer Rick Bass left the comfort of his home in Montana and headed to Namibia's vast Namib desert to see the black rhino for himself and to find out more about how Namibia protects the species. His account of it is the black rhinos of Namibia searching for survivors in the African
8: desert. Bass did see a black rhino, a mother, and her baby. We were hiding we thought safely watching her from several miles and she just came straight to us. Uh, we had the wind in our favor. It was inexplicable why she came to us. Uh, we weren't hiding right on her watering hole. Uh, we were just out in the middle of this, uh, Mars like desert and she just turned and and came Hmm. all the way to us, you know, within, within, uh, 30 feet, just, uh, just point blank. And, uh, and then, you know, they have very bad eyesight, but they have really good sense of hearing and smell and, uh, she finally got so close she could even smell us upwind, and she did not like it. It was it was a really tense uh, What'd she time do? in the what Did ba- she
0: did she turn and run away, or
8: she she pawed you? and yep she pawed <laughs> and 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 grunted and and voided uh, blasted this this bizarre geyser of, of urine, which I didn't know they did straight into the sky like, Whoa. like Old Faithful or something. And uh, and her baby was with her, and her baby was freaking out, and so she turned and went back to her baby, and 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 they, were, they ran off. But uh, she, she was not happy to be just out for a stroll and to walk right up on us.
0: So it seems like Namibia was able to turn the, this decreasing population of rhinos around. I mean, are there lessons from Namibia that could be applied elsewhere in Africa?
8: Yeah, no, I, I think so. And, and and what's interesting to me is is Africa is kind of a, a leader. Namibia is kind of a leader in this conservation model. One of the interesting things that, that these groups did, uh, most notably Save the Rhino Trust, was to go out and hire poachers, uh, to protect the rhinos and pay them more to walk around uh, collecting data on the rhinos and protecting them than to, uh, to ki- than they would get for killing them and, and sawing the horns off. So that was a a large turn. Subsequently, over the over the last decades, uh, there has built up a culture in these communities of oh the rhinos are good for our economy uh they they bring people in to look at them we want to protect them so that's that's a really important uh, distinction as well that now people aren't just being paid to protect rhinos they want to protect the rhinos
0: what what's the attitude of these former poachers who are now guarding the
8: rhinos uh toward the actual poachers who are working right now well well uh i mean i'm what i'm not being clear about here is is how desperately poor the villages are uh there's not the luxury of of moral uh judgments if if there's a poacher coming in to kill a rhino that's the same as the poacher coming in to take away the guard's livelihood that's a bad situation uh for both and, and vice versa it's quite a different uh dynamic you know it's a cliche to say that every day is a struggle to survive it it's you know i, I don't think it's even broken down into days but rather portions of days you know morning noon and night it's 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 a tough tough go out there. Water water limited. I mean, the Namib desert, is it is one of the driest places on earth. And it's, uh, people have lived there a long time, but it's never been easy and it never will be. Rick, thank you very much. Good to speak with you. You too. Thanks again. Now from Namibia, shift your sights north
0: to Central Africa and another creature in our GeoQuiz. quiz. <laughs> We're looking for the name of a large region of lowland rainforest in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's more or less in the center of the country, as this conservation biologist explains.
9: Okay, well this forest is a big block of forest to the south of Kisangani and the north of Chindu. There are a number of large mammals that live there, such as the okapi, which is Congo's rainforest giraffe, the bonobo, an ape endemic also to the Congo. All of these species are found in that same forest.
0: But what really excites this scientist now is the new species of monkey he and his wife found in this forest. We have pictures at theworld.org. More on the Lysula monkey when we come back with the answer later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marka Worman. Ahead More Protests in Egypt. A reporter there says many demonstrators haven't seen the film, they're angry about.
1: These are uneducated people, a lot of them are illiterate, they don't use the internet. The trailer of the film has been on YouTube, so a lot of them have not actually seen the film.
3: Rise the world, is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC
0: World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi today vowed to protect the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. His promise was immediately put to the test. Demonstrators clashed with police as they tried to throw stones at the embassy. On Tuesday, the protesters stormed the building and tore down the U.S. flag. That was the first in a wave of anti-American protests in the Middle East this week, supposedly over a film that has offended many Muslims. Shahira Amin is a former deputy head and senior anchor at Egypt's state-owned Nile TV. She resigned from the position in February last year because she disapproved of the channel's coverage of the revolution. She says the protests today in Cairo started in front of the American embassy, but were then pushed by police to nearby Tahrir Square.
1: A lot of the protesters are presumed to be ultra-conservative Salafists because uh, they have beards. Uh, the women are all covered up uh, with niqabs, the face veil, but also the ultras, which is the football fans. Uh, soccer that support so- soccer the, fans, yeah. Yes, they support the Al-Ahli national team. They have had a big role in protests in the transitional period against the military, and uh, I think it's these young people that are behind all the vandalism, throwing rocks at, the, at security forces. So some people are stirring up things here.
0: Tahrir Square obviously has so many other associations. I'm wondering, is the tone of the demonstrations now shifting? Are the concerns different now from what they were 48 hours ago?
1: Since the appointment of the new Islamist president, things have been relatively quiet. But as you know, the economy isn't doing too well. But the strikes have been uh, ongoing regardless. People demanding higher wages, better work conditions. So a lot of people have been on the streets. You know, they have found their voices. They're now able to express themselves more freely. There are inflamed sentiments But I've asked a lot of the protesters, have they actually seen the film? And they haven't because, you know, we have a 40% poverty rate in Egypt. These are uneducated people. A lot of them are illiterate. They don't use the Internet. And the trailer of the film has been on YouTube. So a lot of them have not actually seen the film. It's spread through word of mouth. Mm. We saw this happen before with the Danish cartoon some years ago. And uh, people just get very angry here when it comes to religion, when there are insults of their faith or their revered prophet Muhammad.
0: Yeah, we've heard that same thing about uh, the protesters in Yemen, that they are just angry, but very few of them, if any, had seen this trailer. So is this demonstration now morphing into anger about other issues, not just this film, uh, about the economy, about unemployment?
1: Possibly, Lots of reasons to be angry here, but uh, the government has called for restraint. They have asked people to express themselves peacefully. And I personally find that the reactions are a bigger insult to Islam than the actual film. You know, killing innocent people, this cannot be condoned by any peace-loving Muslim. And I see it as an attack at the Arab Spring, at the revolution, because I can see, you know, some people trying to incite or foment sedition. I can't tell who it is, but uh, as we've seen in Libya, you don't go to a peaceful protest with RPGs,
0: rocket propelled grenade, and just yes, to
1: and you don't kill innocent people. So I think that something bigger is behind all of this. We heard uh, Ayman Zawahri of Al Qaeda mm. in his September 11th address. He called on Libyans to avenge the killing of the number two Al Qaeda, Abu Yahya al Libi. He was Libyan, so this could be Al Qaeda elements, terrorism with state intelligence. You know, former regime loyalists who just don't want things to stabilize in this part of the world. I saw a lot of people, Mubarak supporters, post on Facebook today, see, this is what happens when you have an Islamist president.
0: And Shahira, what has been Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi's reaction to the embassy protest, but also the film that sparked the protests? What's he saying?
1: He has condemned the film, but the Muslim Brotherhood on its website said that the protests must be peaceful and called on Egyptians to control their anger. But, I know that he needs badly the support of the international community and of the United States. So hopefully this won't cause a rift between the two countries. Ambassador Chris Stevens was a friend of the Arabs. He was a peace-loving man, and he didn't deserve that at all. So I see this as a strike against the revolution.
0: Egyptian journalist Shahira Amin, good to speak with you again. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Marco.
0: Meantime, in Syria, there are no reports of protests over the film, but then again, Syria is mired in its own homegrown violence. The protests and the uprising that began there 18 months ago have since morphed into a civil war. The U.N. now says a quarter million Syrian refugees have fled to nearby countries. Turkey is hosting about a third of the refugee population. Most Syrian families and activists have settled in the southern Turkish town of Antakya, but growing tensions with the local community there have caused authorities to take new steps to ease the pressure on the border region. Marine Olivezi reports.
10: On a busy pedestrian street, a group of activists in their 20s hand out leaflets. Behind them is a banner that features the Turkish and Syrian flags locked together. Antakya, which is just 12 miles away from the Syrian border, might be teeming with refugees, but these Turkish activists aren't on the side of the revolution.
9: He's saying that we don't want uh, bloody handed Al Qaeda militias on the Antakya streets.
10: Erkin Unjan explains that he and other activists believe the Free Syrian Army is a group of terrorists backed by Al Qaeda, a sentiment very much in line with the stance of the Syrian regime. Njan says locals are worried about the unabated violence on their doorstep, but there's more.
9: People are not just anxious, people are angry. Syrian refugees, they're acting like a king of these areas. They're coming here, you know, uh, making some noises around there, and going on a, a restaurant and not paying, going on a store, buying something and not paying.
10: The few locals say they've actually witnessed these actions, Resentment of the refugees is mounting. At demonstrations like this one in early September, an odd mix of Turkish Alawites and political activists like Unjan chanted pro-regime slogans. Alawites, who come from the same religious group as Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, make up half the population in the region and they fret over the rising number of Sunni refugees. Leftist parties, on the other hand, reject Turkey's alliance with the US and NATO. After this demonstration, we found out that things are changing. Fatma is a Syrian English teacher who has lived in Turkey for over a decade and has been helping refugees. She says rising tensions here have a direct fallout, with police raiding scores of houses over the past 10 days. They were like kicking the doors getting inside, trying to threaten them, asking them that they have to be all leaving the, uh, the cities which are close to the borders. Syrians without passports are told they have to go to refugee camps, though Turkish authorities admit they're overcrowded. Refugees who have passports are asked to move north, away from the border. Hanadi and her six children have lived in Antakya for the past 13 months. The family was part of the first wave of refugees seeking shelter in Turkey and is now one of the first to be threatened with eviction by the police.
5: When they came one week ago, they said, pack your yourself, you have to leave immediately. She herself told them that I'm pregnant, I will give birth in no time, you, I can't move with my furniture, with my family to, no, to the nowhere, so I'll give birth, after that we will move. When she came from hospital, they came immediately. They gave her five
7: days.
10: Hanadi's extra time is up tomorrow, and her options are limited. They can only go to one of the four designated towns, which are roughly between 90 and 240 miles away from Antakya. Hanadi says displacing refugees after they've toiled for months to adjust to life here is cruel. Her husband has found a job as a painter. They've signed a one-year lease on their apartment and the family has no savings to resettle.
5: For a Syrian families, the tradition. When a family gets a new born baby, people will come and give him money. Like, they put him in his clothes, in his underwear, you know. And only one guy came here and gave the boy 20 Turkish lira, and this is what they have now, this 20 Turkish lira. All, all, all what they have, the baby's money.
10: The legal ground for the eviction of families like Anadis is murky. The document, produced by police officers, bears no signature, no stamp, no letterhead. The governor of Antakya province himself couldn't confirm or deny the new course of action. Activists like Jihad say the new policy is a blow to the cross-border networks they've built over the past year.
9: We are here because this city is close to the border. And through it, we can go inside Syria and go out. And we can communicate with people coming from Syria and people going to Syria. So it would be a catastrophe to go inside, inland, Turkey. If we are away, we can do this kind of jobs.
10: That said, some do admit the social environment in the region has come to a boil and that sending refugees farther away could release the pressure on border towns like Antakya. For the world... I'm Marine Olivezi in Antakya, Turkey.
0: The African lowland rainforest we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz is home to a creature called the Cercopithecus lamamiensis, The answer to the quiz is actually embedded in the Latin name of that creature. John Hart is a conservation biologist in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's with the Lukuru Wildlife Research Project. John, you you research these creatures, and I'll say right now that the creature in question is a primate, a newly discovered species of primate, and that's a pretty big deal. What is its common name, and what does this primate actually look like?
9: Well, the common name for uh, this new monkey is the lasula, the animal is is really unexpectedly beautiful. It has a red patch on its back, a, a yellow blonde mane around its face, and uh, for the males, a spectacular aquamarine blue patch on its whole backside, a blue that's just uh, electrically visible in the understory of the forest.
0: Right. We've got some pictures uh, that, that you've shared with us on our website at theworld.org. And I'll provide my own shorthand for our listeners who recall our report from a few weeks ago. That fresco of Christ in that church in Spain that that 80-year-old woman tried to restore and they messed up. It looks just like a lasula monkey. So, John, they're shy and very quiet. How did you get close enough to observe them? I mean, how do you find a new species of monkey?
9: That was a real challenge for this species because it is very discreet. It's uh, most prominent and right in the dark before dawn, when it has this pre-dawn chorus of calls. Actually, we learned to uh, we learned to watch these things by uh, setting ourselves up quietly, looking around where with other primate groups that came around, and we really pretty soon we started seeing them sometimes accompanying other monkeys, sometimes on their own. It lives in a remote place, it's shy, it lives in small groups, so it was not easy to see right off the bat. One of the reasons why it remained unknown to the present.
0: And what part of Congo do the Lissula monkeys inhabit?
9: The Lasula have a range of about 6,000 or so square miles. The Lomami forest is almost dead center in the, right in the Democratic Republic of Congo. For the real aficionados of African geography, you could speak about the Lasula monkey lives between the Chwapa and the Lomami rivers. But if you could say it lives on the left bank of the Lomami River, that would, be, that would be the best hint because the name of the species is right there, Lomamiensis.
0: Okay, so you may, listeners, have had several different answers, but if Lamami was in any of them, count yourself a winner. Now, you had one... Ex- if Lamami's
9: in ex- any of them, we're going to give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Cercopithecus lamamiensis.
9: <laughs> I would like to know who who gets that Joe quiz answer. I want them on my field project. <laughs> yeah, really.
0: Well, somebody with a GPS in brain. <laughs> we hear so much uh, about pressure on primate species in Central Africa, Are there already concerns about the Lusula monkeys and and what humans might do to them? Or maybe there's already poaching going on.
9: That's right. This monkey is living in one of the most remote uh, remaining rainforest blocks in Central Africa. There's no substantial settlements in anywhere in the species range. But in fact, the bushmeat commercialization of wild meat as a source of food mainly to urban buyers and urban residents has... Forced hunters and pushed hunters into even these most remote places where they're uh, looking for still intact populations of wildlife, which are hunted, the meat is dried, uh, packed into dugout canoes, pushed out to these cities. Those hunters now have pushed now into the Lasulas forest. So at the same time we were making the discovery of the species, we were also documenting the great risk to it. Some of the early animals we first saw, before we ever saw the animal in the wild, we were finding dead monkeys and orphaned monkeys. So already that was a poignant statement for us of the threat, the real threat that this species and all of the wildlife in this region faces.
0: And John, I gather you're headed back to the Lomami forest tomorrow?
9: That's right. We've been working with the scattered communities that live around this area to develop a proposal for the Lomami National Park. And that's our big push right now.
0: John Hart is a conservation biologist in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's with the Lukuru Wildlife Research Project. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. That newly discovered lasula monkey is a looker. We've got pictures at theworld.org. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International.
3: PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Frontline. Come inside a last-chance high school for an unflinching look at America's dropout epidemic. Meet four kids on the verge of dropping out and the educators desperately trying to keep them in school. Dropout Nation, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The presidential candidates spent yesterday trading barbs of the handling of the attacks on U.S. missions in Egypt and Libya. Today, the campaigns are back on the economy. President Obama is in Colorado, a key swing state. To win it, the president needs to court Latino immigrants. The trick is getting them to vote, as the world's Jason Margolis reports.
11: According to the census, 13 percent of Colorado's voting age citizens are Hispanic and those Latinos overwhelmingly support the Democratic Party. Two years ago, 81% of Colorado Latinos favored the Democrat, Michael Bennett, for U.S. Senate. It's clear to University of Denver political scientist Seth Maskett that Latinos are pivotal to the presidential election in his state.
3: If they turn out in high numbers, that probably means that the Democrats will win. If they don't turn out in high numbers, uh, the Republicans could win it.
11: But will Latinos vote? Tangia Estrada with the nonpartisan group Voto Latino says yes. Estrada has been registering young Latinos in Colorado for the past month. We met at a barbecue on the University of Northern Colorado campus in Greeley.
7: We're really seeing a lot of excitement. When people do come up to the table to register, they're pretty insistent that they are going to turn out to vote on Election Day.
11: Her goal is to register 5,000 people by early October. There were about 100 prospects at the barbecue.
7: At an event like this, I would want a minimum of 25 voter registrations.
11: I spent about two hours at the barbecue. It was slow going. Every few minutes, one of the event organizers would implore people to register, even resorting to a little legal bribery. You
10: could get an iTunes gift card. So if you haven't visited the Voto Latino
7: table... A lot of the people were
11: already registered. In the end, Estrada signed up 14 more. Still, she remained upbeat.
7: I think any opportunity we have a
1: chance to interact with this many students, it's it's a good night.
11: And while Estrada professes optimism, others aren't so cheery.
1: Well, uh, it doesn't look that great. I have the numbers over here.
11: Maria Young is an immigrant from Mexico who now helps other immigrants find professional work here. Young showed me voting statistics from two years ago. Less than a third of Colorado's Hispanic citizens voted. Their participation was 25% below non Hispanic whites.
1: What can we do? What can we do to motivate the other cash, two thirds, or whatever? It's a
11: struggle. Young said many Latino immigrants come from places where they don't trust elections or politicians. And they don't see politicians helping them here either.
1: Indeed, if you are working in construction or uh, as a janitor, you don't see any difference. The minimum wage has not changed for how long? $7.25 an hour, for God's sake. So what difference does it make whether you vote one way or the other?
11: This said, Young supports President Obama. The Obama campaign has a strong presence in Latino neighborhoods in Greater Denver. I saw lots of signs that read, Latinos for Obama. I didn't see any for Mitt Romney. Mary Ferraro, who was born and raised in Mexico, says she likes the president's support of the DREAM Act and his executive order that gives some young undocumented immigrants a chance to stay here.
1: A lot of these people went to university and then no jobs because they did not have a work permit. So now they are able to work legally in the country and it's going to benefit the economy.
11: Marjorie SILVA, originally from Peru, says the economy is already benefiting from the president's initiatives. She runs the Azucar Bakery in Denver. She became a citizen a month ago.
3: I'm voting for Obama, I love him. I think he's good, (laughs) he's great.
11: You said you love Obama, why do you love Obama?
3: Well, I think he's done some really good changes. The economy is getting better. I can see, you know, that people are spending more money, you know, wedding cakes. Two years ago, weddings were for 20 people, 50 people. This year, we're back place of 100, 200. So that's good for everybody.
11: Everybody except maybe Mitt Romney. The Romney campaign in Colorado did not return my phone calls, but the campaign website has a short message for Latinos in Colorado and elsewhere. It says, your community is still struggling because the Obama economy isn't working. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Denver.
0: You can see more of Jason's stories on immigrants and the elections there at theworld.org. Finally, Guatemala is a long way from Indiana, but there is an intersection, the theme song for the TV show Parks and Recreation. The show takes place in the fictional town of Pawnee, Indiana, The song was co-written by Guatemalan singer-songwriter Gabi Moreno. But Gabi Moreno does more than TV themes, much more. She's got a new CD out called Postales. Joining me now to tell us more about Gabi Moreno and what music he's digging off her new album is Beto Arcos. He's a frequent music contributor to our program. And Beto, when did the music of Gabi Moreno first catch your ear?
6: To be quite honest, only about three weeks ago. I've known about her music for a couple of years But it never really touched me until three weeks ago when I got her new record. She really has a voice. And I think this is what what took me, what really got me, is that it's as if she's come home with this new album. She's found a voice. So give us a brief
0: bio. Who, Who is she? Who is Gabby Moreno?
6: Well, she's a singer from Guatemala. She moved to Los Angeles about 12 years ago. She's won a couple of renowned competitions, the John Lennon Songwriting Competition. She has three albums, but unlike the previous records, she sings all the songs in Spanish. The previous album, she sings English and Spanish. I have to say, she is equally as good in English as
0: she is in Spanish. Well, tell us about a track from Postales, this album that kind of flipped you uh, on Gabi Moreno. What do you want us to hear? Uh, Let's hear this tune called Ave
6: Que Emigra, which means bird that migrates. It's a song all about coming to the U.S., not unlike a story of many people from Central America.
0: That's the song Ave Que Emigra by Gabby Moreno from her new album Postales. Is it about immigration, that tune, Beto Arcos?
6: It is. It's, uh, you know, it's not the typical immigrant song. It's just a very subtle song about coming to a new country and she's just beautifully arranged the song in a kind of American folk tune. And you know what? She can deliver a classic bolero, an old song from the 1920s, and she can sing blues and jazz all in one.
0: So, Beto, take us out with one more track from uh, Gabby Moreno's new album, Postales.
6: Let's listen to this song called El Sombrerón, which literally means the man with a big hat. It's kind of a folk legend in Guatemala about a man who, in a sense, seduced women and then left them, and they went crazy. It's a fantastic story. Okay, great.
0: Music from Guatemala's Gabby Moreno, chosen for us today by Beto Arcos. Beto, thanks a lot. We'll speak again soon.
6: Thanks, Marco.
3: Al caer la tarde Por el callejo Las <laughs> calles vacías Sale
0: From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International